Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Welcome to episode number 202 of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Thank you so much for tuning in and for being part of our show. I really, really appreciate everybody who has joined the community, who participates on Facebook, uh, people who send me tweets at Cool Podcast. We're having a lot of fun, and we're trying now that we've crossed the 200 episode, which I kind of think is a big deal. We're trying to maybe step up what we're doing and, and do some more interesting interviews, maybe dive a little deeper and... Today, we're going international. Today, we have Ruud Jansen. Now, he is originally from the Netherlands. He lives in Switzerland. However, he is an international guy. He is well-known throughout the world in the meetings business because he's a facilitator, a business moderator, he's an event designer and a marketer, and he has expert knowledge in the global meetings business and membership-based organizations. I actually met Rude at a Meeting Professionals International Conference. Gosh, it has to be four or five years ago. And we've kept in touch online, and I, I see his name uh, in things that pop up in the meetings and events world all the time. And he has a brand new book out about event design. So I wanted to get in here and have him share a little bit of his entrepreneurial story and talk about why the events business is so important and why it's continuing to boom when everybody thought, oh, in the world of the internet, events are going to go down, records are being set in the events business with the amount of people who are participating in conferences and other live events. So I wanted to have him on the show because I think what he's doing is cool. So Rude Jensen, welcome to Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Thank you, Tom. And congratulations on making the 200 mark and already being at 202 episodes. That's a pretty, uh, pretty phenomenal feat. Well, you know, it's kind of one of those things that I like doing it. So at the end of the day, it's not even work for me. I, I just, I enjoy, you know, recording the episodes and a little secret. If you listen to episode 200, I'm the one who's learning the most because I get to interview people like you who are out there doing really cool things. I can, I, I can hear, as I mentioned, um, uh, listening to quite a few of your podcasts over the last two days as I was driving back and forth from Basel in Switzerland, where I live, to Lausanne, and to see some clients in Geneva. It was about a two, three-hour drive, and I enjoy sitting in the car, downloading my podcast, and you know, going through going going through the conversations. And uh, episode two hundred stood out to me. I have to say, Tom, where you you know took the resume of ten points, uh, very honest uh, feedback on being an entrepreneur, which I think is uh, is very valuable for people like myself um, who are in the same boat. Yep. Well, Rude, I gave a little bit of a background of kind of who you are and what you do, but why don't you tell the audience a little bit more in detail about who is Rude Jensen? Okay. Well, first of all, uh, talking about yourself is always a little bit difficult. So <laughs> um, I'll point people to the LinkedIn profile if that's really what they want to know in detail. But um, I have had several careers because I think life is too short to have just one. Um, <laughs> the first one that I started was uh, a career as a hotelier. Uh, I'm fascinated by the by the world of um, you know people providing hospitality. Uh, I had the good fortune of living in different countries with my parents when I was a teenager and a and a kid, which exposed me to different cultures, uh, having lived in different countries in Europe and in the Far East and, and a short period in North America. 
And it really teaches you about, you know, the different styles of hospitality. So that fascination turned into my profession for the first 10, 12 years of my career. Running hotels where we had tons of events coming in. And I could almost, I've, I've developed a fairly fine nose to determine which events were going to go really, really right. And especially which events were going to go almost right or fatally wrong. <laughs> and I think, you know, that was probably the seed planted for the next part of my career, which was being a professional conference organizer in an association management company within a larger international structure where we actually, you know, took the events and brought them to different destinations on behalf of clients, be organizations, associations, corporations, NGOs, you name them. And this gave me the good fortune of uh, traveling the world and bringing events to different places and looking at the marketing side of events. Subsequently, that, um, um, that led me to, the, to, to see a gaping hole that started developing, I think, uh, right when uh, all the social media developments started happening across the planet because all of a sudden, the internet became a new medium where people could communicate and communicate very directly with each other which was very exciting, but at the same time, you saw the sluggishness and the slowness of larger corporations. And I was eager to roll up my sleeves and jump into an opportunity of saying, I think this can be done faster, better, cheaper. Choose any of the two. So, and that's when I started a company called TNOC, the New Objective Collective. Um, and subsequently, about three years ago, together with two colleagues called Wolf Christen and Dennis Leyer, who are also the co-authors of the Event Design Handbook, I uh, started a movement called the uh, Event Model Generation, uh, very much inspired by uh, some of the pains that people experience when they own an event. Right? Event owners, if you look at them closely, and I'm sure, Tom, you do this all the time, just like many of the people that are on this podcast, there's a deer-in-headlight look in their eye, usually about, you know, when the pride of owning the event at first turns into the fear of knowing what it's actually going to be, when it's going to be on, you know, live on stage when it's there. And it's that ownership pain that I think is so tremendously big that it was screaming for a way out. It's screaming for a solution for a different way of approaching event design. And so the pain led into the current business venture, which is called Event Model Generation. So you bring up something interesting, and that is that you've, you know, you've had several careers along the way, and you're still a relatively young man, and you've already had a number of different career paths that you've taken. Uh, one of my previous guests, Dr. Debbie Gilboa, has a great question. She's a parenting expert, and she has a great thing that you shouldn't ask your kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? You should ask them, what do you want to do first? Because she thinks that going forward, having lots of different careers is not going to be uncommon. It's going to be the norm. And she herself has a really interesting story. She started off as an actress and working for Second City Television in Chicago. And then when she was in her late 20s or early 30s, she went back to medical school and became a doctor and actually has a family practice. But now she is the Today Show's parenting expert. She's a professional speaker. So her career has morphed several times in her still young life. And so her whole thing is, is that don't ask, what are you going to do when you grow up? Say, what are you going to do first? And I, I think like that, it. and I think I'm that's, try that on my own kids. yeah. And I think that's something that you sort of touched on is that, you know, your first career was in hotel management and that led you to see things. And I think that's what we see in all the people who come on this show who are entrepreneurs is they, they recognize different areas where maybe there's a hole where somebody isn't filling it or isn't doing it as well as they can. So what sort of led you 
from starting off in the hotel world to, you know, slowly kind of morphing and changing and, and becoming an entrepreneur? What is it that led you to, to, to leave, you know, the corporate world and do your own thing? I think it's, um, I think there's always multiple kind of reasons why things happen. And I, I believe in, in, in fate or in destiny, the fact that things happen for a reason. Um, uh, the way that I see the developments that have gone on in, 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 in my career, and especially also in how our family has evolved. I have two kids and I have a lovely wife and together we, um, we're, we tend to be a bit adventurous in how we take on things. Uh, one of those things we took on about seven, eight years ago was actually uh, moving to uh, Switzerland after having established our family and our careers in the Netherlands first. Um, I think our, our blood has been, um, let's say, uh, maybe infected with the travel virus, with the nomadic virus of living in multiple countries. Um, and at the same time, you want a stable and a and the best possible environment for yourself to live in. So um, when we opened a good bottle of wine over Christmas in, in 2008, um, we said to each other, you know, what would be a country that we'd really like to live if we could choose out of all the countries in the world uh, based on what we know today? And um, at the age of our kids at the time, six and ten, you know, that's still a good age for kids to be moving to a different country and learn a new language and you know, uh, li- literally uproot them a little bit something that I've experienced and my wife has both experienced. And we found that a very valuable, let's say, asset for ourselves to develop. And we wanted to give our kids that same, same opportunity. So for us, that was a reason to, uh, you know, to move here to Switzerland. And uh, it was also an opportunity to, uh, to transition the business I started in the Netherlands and actually establish it now in Switzerland um, with, uh, with all the changes that come about with that. So I think, you know, uh, the way that things fall together, the reason why things happen is because you take a leap of faith and you jump into a place that you don't know. And uh, unlike jumping off an airplane where you know you need a parachute, you know, when, you, when you're an entrepreneur, when you start thinking about doing things like that, you need to have the freedom of spirit and the freedom of mind, but also um, maybe the craziness factor in your mind to, you know, to be confident that this is something that's going to work. And it's a scary jump, right? I mean, the, the first acceleration is the most difficult one, like most of the people on your podcast have already identified. It's, you know, how do you, how do you establish yourself? How do you actually get started? Right? Beyond the promises of uh, prospective clients and, and, you know, actually turning it into a monetized business that you can, uh, that you can um, live off and, and, you know, uh, make sure the chimney smokes in the in the Janssen house or in the Singer house or in whichever house the chimney needs to smoke. So for you though, what was that, what was that little thing inside? What made you, what made you go and do it to start your own business or even in the case of relocating to Switzerland, what was that? Was there something inside of you that just said it's going to be okay? Yeah, I think, I think, I think there's signs that, that, that come across at different places. Uh, uh, it's also the fact that I think when 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 you, when you become really good at at you know succession planning and and hiring really good people, then uh, you get in the way at certain points, which is a good thing. Um, uh, and also, you know, I think I think at a certain stage, I I was, um, and I think that's in in hindsight, I I, I understand it. You know, uh, having worked in a fixed venue, you know, in a conference hotel for for a better part of the beginning of my career. 
Um, I love doing that because it was all inbound business and, you know, you had control of the environment and you could do all sorts of things that were very interesting. Um, then after a number of years when you do that, and I did it at two different venues, you discover that, wow, these events go elsewhere and these people go elsewhere and they travel all over the place and I'm stuck here in this place or stuck, you know, it's a good place to be stuck in. But at the same time, you go back and forth to the same place. And if you're not building, you know, at the end of the day, I realized, uh, you know, that if you would take that outside as a PCO, you could actually travel with these events and do different things in that way, which was very interesting. But every time you were building somebody else's brand and, and, and not your own brand. So I think the equity that you're allowed to build or that you're building within the framework of your job for somebody else, is pretty exciting to do. But when you see that you're pretty good at it, um, it's actually worthwhile to do it for yourself too. <laughs> so what yeah. do you love? What do you love about the life you've now created as an entrepreneur? Oh, it's, it's wild, crazy, uh, good, you know, in a, in a good way. As a, as a kid, I, I, I think I hardly finished any books that I started reading. Uh, and my brother just gave a speech when we got this book out last Friday. You know, we picked it up in Amsterdam from our publishers by boats. And he said, uh, I'm so glad to now know that my brother's actually finished more than just one book, right? <laughs> Not just the one that he wrote, but also a couple of other ones. Um, because I love, I'm very curious, but I'm very impatient, right? So um, what I love is to do many different things. And as an entrepreneur, you know, you have to do a lot of different things from sales to marketing to finance to, you know, business development to, you know, managing the people that uh, uh, have something to say about you, whether it be your family or your accountant or the tax man. Um, you know, it's, it, I, 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 I like the fact that I'm being stretched in different directions. That's something that I like. Um, I find it very exciting to not know what's around the next corner. Um, and at the same time, it's also something that keeps you up at night. You know, it can be terrifying. Sometimes you get, you know, big projects that come your way and then you go, wow, I think we deserve that. And then at the same time, you think, how will we, you know, actually fulfill that within that given time? So it's, yeah, it's absolutely exhilarating. The biggest thing I like about it is being able to, you know, to plan your own time and time has become, my working time has not become a something I look at. It's something that just happens. Right? So the freedom of time, the ability to make place not a work I uh, you know work not a place I go, but a thing I do wherever I am, um, in whichever context. I'm making that really fun with people I like to work with. Having the ability to choose who you work with, I think is, uh, or them choosing you because they like you, or vice versa. You develop a relationship that's 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 positive. I think that's, that is just very liberating in how you live as a person. Uh, and, and, and meeting interesting people like, like yourself. Right? You know, four years ago, we met, I think, at MPI in Dallas. And you, you, know, you, keep, you keep running into, in, into people in different places. We met again in, at PCMA in Vancouver just yep. in January. Right? <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, that's, that's what I find most fascinating about it, is the liberty of doing what you love to do. And it doesn't cost a lot of effort when you do that. Well, and you bring up, you know, we met at MPI and then we met at the PCMA event in Vancouver. I assume you'll be in Austin, Texas next year for P, uh, PCMA uh, when they come. That could just be the case. Yeah. When, when, <laughs> when, when, when they come to Austin, because, you know, Austin is an awesome destination for a big event like PCMA. Uh, you know, so it is kind of fun. It's an incestuous little business because you do continuously run into people. I've found now that as I've been a professional speaker for over seven years, that a lot of my clients have moved from one association to another, and now they're hiring me to come into their new association. It's like, wow, you know, it just, people just keep coming around. It's a, it's a pattern of circles that just keep coming back. 
Yeah. And, and that transitions me a little bit to the the meetings business. What is some of the things that you see going on right now? I mean, as an event designer, what are some of the things that you see going on in the world of corporate and association meetings that's exciting, that's cool? I see a screaming need for people to better understand each other when they're creating an event, right? So one of the big frustrators that I think um, that has led us to, to actually create this thing called the event canvas was a glimmer of hope that we saw, or that I first saw, actually was also in Vancouver in 2010 um, at the NPI International Board of Directors meeting. I ran into Alex Osterwalder, who created something called the Business Model Canvas. And at the time, he was talking about the Tower of Babylon and the fact that people were talking over each other's heads and it was blah, blah, blah. And, and it all kind of resonated, but only later when I thought it through much more and when I started looking at it closer, when this book came out, I started I started understanding the dynamic of how businesses actually function, create value, and how you can talk and think and rationalize, you know, things that work well and things that don't work well, which was what I recognized in my hotel time. You know, I developed this nose for knowing that event is going to really, you know, be fantastic and that event is going to be mediocre and this one is going to be an absolute failure. And it's almost like developing a radar about how that happens, but Instead of just having a personal radar, what, what we've tried to develop is make it a um, make it not just a radar, but make it a predictive device and make it a make it a methodology for you to design how to land your plane, you know, in the best possible way. Um, and what we also discovered is that people have very little time, so uh, being able to articulate that on one piece of paper uh, across many different layers, whether it's the CEO levels or the people on the managerial level or the people that are executing, you know, the logistics of events, they all need to have a similar language to speak. And that, lang- that language is actually missing in the industry. Um, um, and what's most interesting is that once we've developed this and we've put this event canvas um, under Creative Commons, so it's something that is now spread across the planet, you know, you can download it for, download it for free. Uh, people are applying it and have translated it. You know, volunteers have translated it now into nine different languages. It's being used, you know, people, we, we get 10 to 15 downloads every day and it's increasing as we go along. Uh, and this has been going on for two and a half years now. So what's happening is that people are picking up on it because it fulfills a need. And the subsequent thing that happens is that the need for under for having the language, for having the, I kind of compare it to music, you know, Austin's a big music city. Um, I was just uh, in Montreux, where the jazz festival is, and I saw a napkin at the Montreux jazz bar, and it had, you know, the music bars on it and, and, and the clef. And, you know, that is a framework for people to compose music. There's no specific framework for people to compose events. The event canvas is what, you know, the six bars are in music. Um, and it is a structure in which you can orchestrate your events and think about it, design it, prototype it, select the best strategic alternative and then find a way to align a team to actually be able to execute that. So that's in the meetings industry where it started, but the biggest need, and that's very interesting from the people that are using it today, are actually people that we don't run into so often, Tom, at these types of events that MPI and PCMA puts on, but it's actually people that own the events that are screaming harder than anybody in the industry because the industry follows the demand, right? Demand has the pain. Resolving that pain is something that um, apparently we've uh, touched on. And now organizations like um, 
you know, yet Wednesday I was speaking to the International Olympic Committee, who we've done some designs for for future events. So we've trained their teams, United Nations and Geneva, you know, the International Telecom Union. These are people that have high stakes events that are taking place with many stakeholders and many stakes to be aligned. And they want a methodology so that everybody in the organization understands where they're going with a specific event. So that is the need that we're, yeah, that we're serving and fulfilling. So it's way beyond the meetings industry because that's the supply chain fulfilling that need. So let's talk a little bit about your new book. So your new book then goes to the heart of event design. In fact, that's part of the title. So what's the whole title of the book? So, the, so it's called the Event Design Handbook. Uh, how to systematically design innovative events using the event canvas. Uh, so event canvas is technically that one sheet of paper that I was talking about um, that you can download for free on eventcanvas.org. Uh, the book itself actually analyzes, um, or is actually the second thing that we did. The first thing that we did is that people were saying, well, the process that you develop, that you take us through when you go, go through an event design, there's actually a series of steps. It's a sequential process. And what we do is we look at the behavior of a specific stakeholder. So first of all, we look at who are all the stakeholders at an event, and we try to figure out who in that stakeholder group has high power and high interest that we need to delight. You select those stakeholders you want to design for. You define an overarching aim, and basically you look very selfishly at the needs of each of these stakeholders. Right? So imagine you as a speaker have a very specific function or you know, desire with respect to a specific event. The event owner might have a different role and function. The participant, the exhibitor, the sponsor, the, you know, uh, the artist at a festival. You know, and events in this context is not just meetings and conferences. It's, it's really anything from, you know, call it Burning Man to, um, to your kid's seventh or eighth birthday. You know, anything in between can be mapped out in the same thing. You know, the needs of the seven-year-old, the need of the parent, the need of the grandparent are of three very different needs, yet they are three stakeholders at the seventh or eighth birthday party of that kid. So being able to think like that, being able to code and decode the behaviors, we've developed a very pragmatic, easy-to-use system that has a stepped approach to extracting the behaviors before the events and after the events, and then framing everything that you need to know about the event. So how much can it cost? What should the revenues be? What is the time commitment? What's the expected return? What jobs does the event have to get done? You know, social, functional, emotional jobs, basic needs. And ultimately, what does the event promise? Right? The event promise is something you express in a tweet so that that is actually the marketing message of the event for that specific stakeholder. So if you've fi figured all that out and done it you know, one at a time, um, then it is not spaghetti in your brain, which is normally what happens when you think about an event because you're trying to think of all the stakeholders at the same time and all these needs and all these, which, are, which can be complementary or conflicting needs that you first need to dissect. And so that's what the process is all about. We've created something called the Event Simulator Facilitation Kit, which is basically the process in a box. So it's like a gamified version of, let's say, the, the flight simulator of an event, right? That's really what it is. And so... Um, you know, people can take that box and, and get a team of people to design an event because it's not a solo sport. It's something you do as a team. Um, and we thought we had to write the book first, but then people said, oh, no, we need the process first. So we wrote down the process first, made the box, and then the book was still a lingering thing that was in our mind because we wanted, you know, many people would say, well, tell us everything about it, you know, what's behind the box and, you know, how did you get to this? And, and 
what are case studies or examples of how it's used? And that's really what the handbook is. It is a, um, it is a way to, uh, to learn about what the event canvas is, how it's applied, case studies, as well as the two additional things, which is um, um, stakeholder alignment, which is a very important component, and then how to assemble a team that can successfully design an event. Right? So team roles and how to put a good team together to design events effectively. So that's end-to-end kind of the, the book. So with everything that you've done the past, you know, 7, 10, 15 years, what advice would you have, switching back to sort of the, the, the general entrepreneur, what advice do you have for somebody who wants to create their own path? I mean, you've done a great job. You've built an international reputation. You have a business that, you know, you're, you're consulting with people all over the world. If somebody is out there and they have an idea, they see a hole they want to fill, what advice do you have, maybe in the events business, maybe somewhere else? What advice do you have for someone who wants to go create their own path? Hmm. There's, there's, there's two things that stood out from a previous podcast that I heard uh, from Marquesa Petway, who was saying, uh, you've got to be consistent at going to events. And I'd like you to take a step before that. One of the things that I've, I don't know if it was accidental or on purpose, but I started investing my time, volunteer time, in an organization called Meeting Professionals International because I felt it was a space that interested me. Um, so I started donating my time. We're not donating. I was actually sucked into the system. And somebody asked me, would you like to come and join our educational committee? And, and you know, from a very regional country level, you know, uh, evolving those relationships and, and making your circle of connections bigger and bigger um, actually, you know, broaden that horizon. So the one piece of advice that I would give is um, find a place that feels like a good home or a good community to you with the type of people that you work with or something that is of deep interest to you. Uh, that arouses your curiosity and not just for the next year, but, you know, for a decade or two, three, preferably the rest of your life. Um, and invest into that. Invest your time. Get to know, get to know yourself first. Um, understand what it's, you know, get a deep understanding of that industry and how relationships are built and what relationships are, are valuable to you. Uh, because to me, a lot of these relationships have turned into deep friendships and, and you know, business working relationships with my colleagues, Ul and Dennis and others that you meet along the way. Um, and then, you know, building your own proficiency outside of the career that you have, let's say, if you are in a, um, in a, in a current role um, with, an, with an organization, this is something you can do side by side. You know, it's something that creates value for the organization you work for. And it creates value for yourself in terms of building your own um, your own entity outside of that. And I think it's really, you know, the hardest part that I think there is, if you think life is too short for one career like, like I do, then the hardest part is figuring out, you know, when do you jump from one ladder to the next, right? That's kind of, it's, it's, it's a, you know, that's, that's probably the hardest thing that I've, that I've run into. And, you know, sometimes people give you a push in the back and sometimes they hold you back and, you got to know what, what that is. Um, the catalyst for me has always been executive education. So I know that when I got the opportunities to um, immerse myself into executive education or be, you know, learn something that I've not learned before with similar-minded people, it gave me kind of a pathway. It gave me a, a road sign that said, okay, you're coming to a, you know, to a split of the road, and the road sign, you know, moved when I was doing 
executive education uh, when I was investing in myself, taking the time. That's one thing I promised myself as, as, a, as an entrepreneur is that every year I invest at least four to five working days in um, learning about something I don't know about and, and finding a way to find that next program that I want to invest in. Um, and I found that very valuable. So that would be a piece of advice to give. So, you know, you, you started off your advice with talking about how important it was for you to get involved with, with an organization. And I'm a real big believer that, that trade associations and industry groups are more important now than they ever have been. A lot of people try to, to say, oh, you know, has the association become obsolete? I actually think that, you know, these are more important in today's world because we are, while we're more connected because of all the social media tools and the mobile tools, I actually think in a way we're more disconnected because everything's more fragmented. And so getting involved with an organization and, as you said, it sort of finding your home, your people, I think that that helps people be able to discover more success. And you yourself said how important the relationships were as you grew that circle outward and outward. So how important do you think it is for entrepreneurs to get really serious about you know, how they build their network and the people that they connect to, whether it's through their trade association or whether it is just, you know, another way, how important are the people in your life to growing a business? Um, well, I think it's, it's, it's the established relationships of your family and people that are around you that are, that are critical and they remain critical throughout. In um, um, choosing the tribe that feels good for you, Right, so in in finding that trade association and finding that uh, that group of people that feels like they're challenging you, that feels like that that fosters your own your own growth, the more natural it feels, probably the better it is. Right, if you if you feel like you're trying to be, you know, you're aspiring to something um, that's way out of your league or um, or it's something that doesn't come natural or you, you're behaving completely different, then it's going to suck the life out of you, right? So, and it's very interesting. One of the, one of the exercises we do in event design is called empathy mapping, uh, which, is, which is a way of thinking of somebody else, you know, somebody else, somebody else's stake and thinking like them. And of all the exercises we do through the event design, that's the most exhausting one, right? So trying to empathize with somebody else, although it's not a, uh, it's a skill that everybody has. It is a skill that takes a lot of tenacity and it takes a lot of energy. So if you want to be a smart entrepreneur that manages their energy cycle well, that feels well, that feels themselves, which is probably the best thing you can become, then you've got to stay as close to yourself as you possibly can and find the tribe that, you know, or uh, be yourself in that tribe and be accepted for what you do and who you are and how you do that. And there's faults and things that you run into. Uh, as a volunteer, you always get overvalued and under, uh, underwritten for all your successes uh, until you get higher levels of responsibility. Um, and so also the progression is important. You know, don't, don't um, um, be clear about where you want to go. Set yourself some, some, some goals, some milestones in the, you know, in the, in the near and far future. Um, and if you, you know, if you can visualize it, you can, you can make it happen, right? And this is one of the things that I've learned that if you visualize yourself there, then you can find the path to get there. And this is exactly what we now apply with the event canvas. You know, if you could see my screen here, Tom, on, in front of me, my screensaver is actually, we've visualized, you know, the path from 2013 to 2018. 
Um, and, and, you know, half of it is not filled in yet, but most of it kind of falls into place. And, and there's empty things that we fill in as we go along. But I believe a lot that if, you know, if, if you visualize something, it, it actually becomes reality. You can make it reality. And it's, it's also become our life mission with the event canvas is we use a lot of visual thinking where we, where we draw out what it looks like when it's done in the future. And then people have a point and a way to get to that place, right? So all the designs are ultimately quite simple, but interpretable, almost like a comic book, right? Um, and, and your viewers can download the first 100 pages of the book for free uh, on eventcanvas.org if they like. Um, if you like that part, you can buy the rest of the book, which is available starting 11th of October online uh, in North America. It's just been released in Europe. Um, but try to visualize it. Practice with a pen and paper, drawing out a couple of hills and mountains that you want to go over, right, and label them and create a path and see who's along that path and see who you meet on the path and draw them out because it gives you anchors to go back to when you've gone past that point to look back but also to start drawing the future of where you want to go. And um, this is something I learned from our colleague Dennis Leier, you know, the visual component of thinking, of strategic thinking, taking the words away. Now, I'm, I'm using way too many words here, Tom. I can, I can tell uh, because I can't draw on a podcast, right? You can't see what I'm drawing. <laughs> but, um, you know, being a seven-year-old and drawing out what you, what you wish for or what you think, I think is a very powerful mechanism we all have. Hey, hey, Rude, I've got a couple more questions for you. But first, sure. I have to thank the sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. They set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you're going to sound amazing. Podfly does all the heavy lifting and the technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing really cool people from all over the world like Rude Jensen. Hey, for an exclusive offer, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about your advice for entrepreneurs. We've talked about your book. We've talked about all the things you're doing, but I call the show cool things entrepreneurs do. So what is the coolest thing you're doing with your career right now? It's giving away our knowledge. I think that's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, stepping over the hurdle of, of creating something and then, um, giving it away and seeing the impact of that and, and how it boomerangs back with opportunities. This is probably the most daunting thing that I did um, or that we decided to do. Uh, and it's also uh, the craziest thing you can do, um, probably. But at the same time, it's also the most fulfilling thing to do, right? So if it helps other people, if they come back to you. I heard you, Tom, saying, you know, it's not the speaking at events that gets you. Well, that's pretty exciting. That's good fun. And I enjoy doing that too. But it's when people come back to you and say, I've now applied. You know, there's something you said that, that, that remained with me or I heard this in your podcast and it's, it's something that I've now started doing and, I, and what it does for me is this, right? So if you see the outcome of behavior change, if you see how something that, if you see a mechanism or a framework or something that you've talked about or shared with somebody else and you see it in practice being used, you know, the best thing we can do is actually um, step back and observe a team that's using the process with us, uh, without us interfering. That is the most exciting thing that can happen to us because it means that what we design is actually designed well so they can use it without us in the room. That's awesome. Uh, 
Yeah, and it also it also allows you to to uh, to not keep focusing on doing the same thing over and over again, which I notice I'm quite bad at, and that's probably one of the reasons why I went through a number of different uh, roles because uh, I you know repetition is not my forte. Uh, I'm I'm more of a creator than of a repeater. So um, so in order to create new stuff, you've got to drop stuff and you've got to create space to be able to create new stuff. So. That's probably the other coolest thing is to not not hang on to stuff you've been doing and you're really good at, but just kind of let go of that and then start doing something new again. Well, and that's really good advice, I think, for people in the, all industries, but the meetings industry, so often it's just they recycle the same agenda year after year after year, and they do things the same way. I was recently talking to somebody, and you know we had a discussion about their uh, – we had a discussion about whether or not they were going to use a professional MC, and they said, well, we always use one of our board members. It's just what we've always done, and we'll never change from that. And I thought, well, why? And they said, well, because it saves us money. And I thought, wow, that's not necessarily you know, the, the, the greatest answer. And to say we'll never do it limits the possibility of that event. Yes. Yeah. And it's actually um, – I was just listening to another – uh, podcast that was talk, talking about um, uh, how, um, when, when half-truths are being said by people to motivate their choices, uh, which is probably one of the things that, you know, maybe deep down inside the person that said that to you had, had a desire or need or, or from their perspective probably had a change of behavior in mind also for that board member or for, for the event or for a series of people that are there. Uh, because evolution doesn't mean you just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Right? Um, so, so it's um, the thing that I found is that uh, people also have a rejection towards being uh, sold to. How, however, you know, selling is very important and making sure you close the deal and everything. But people want options, right? So, one of the things that we find in in applying design thinking to 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 to, to events is actually that. Um, if you restrict the options, if you create a tight frame around what it could be and then do that really well and think really well about the stakeholders, the limited space that's left over, you have to be extremely creative with it to fill in that space. And the space includes very often, you know, budgetary restriction or time restriction or resources restriction or an expected return. Um, and it has a set of pains and gains that are associated with the entry behaviors. So, it's about first getting all these triggers out because the triggers help motivate the ultimate choice. Right? And you never come out just with one design. You usually come out with three prototypes, rough prototypes, and always a fourth one. Right? Um, and you know, there's, there's, there's another thing that when listening to your podcast, I, I was reminded of, which is you know, who would be really sad if your car, caramel business would stop tomorrow? Right? So, <laughs> so, I, so I love that, that idea of, now, who, who are the people you would disappoint most if you stopped doing what you did tomorrow? And it really got me thinking, you know, over the past couple of days. Yeah, the guy um, from Jones Carmel also sent me a whole box of caramels, and I have to say <laughs> that everybody would be sad if they stopped because they're delicious. Oh, uh, good, good. So, um, so I think people would be really sad, first of all, because I wouldn't be taking my spinning chocolates around the planet anymore to, to, you know, to bribe them to change their behavior when we do our workshops. That's one thing that, you know. But that's not my chocolate. It's actually from a company called Springly uh, here. That's uh, that's local. But um, all kidding aside, um, 
Uh, and now I lost the question, Tom. I'm just talking too much. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. What we were talking about, you were saying that, you know, people often convince themselves with half-truths and that, you know. Oh, yes. but- yeah. And so prototypes, giving them options to say, would you like A, B, C, or D, right? And you describe each of the prototypes to, 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 to a specific degree with a, with a research or motivation of a team that has come up with these prototypes because people want choices. They want options, right? So giving them three or four options and the one option we always use first is, um, you know, what happens if you don't do the event, which is the anti-problem, right? What behavior would not be changed? Um, you know, who would be crying in a handkerchief if it doesn't take place? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's, you know, what is, what, is, what is the impact of it not taking place? Because that evokes all sorts of feelings and all the, what jobs wouldn't get done if the event doesn't take place. It allows you to extract all that information and put it into a sensible order, and usually people have the question, well, what does the team think will work best, right? So the team usually has an opinion, which is always good. Um, but at the same time, you then have leaders very often who want to combine things to say, well, I like this part from prototype A, and I, I'd like that little piece from C and that thing from D, uh, which would be like you know, taking the mirror from a Ferrari and adding it to a... Uh, uh, adding it to a Fiat and then you know putting on the wheels of a um, of a monster truck, which wouldn't necessarily make the ideal design. Right? So you've got to be true to the designs that you come up with. Give people the choice uh, and a motivated choice. So there's never wrong prototypes, just the wrong type time for that prototype. And that's one of the things we found by applying design thinking to event design. So that's awesome. Hey, my last question for you is, and I love to ask this of everybody who comes on my show, and that is, I think that great entrepreneurs, I think they're observers. So we could talk about you and your business and event design and the the meetings industry all day long. However, I love to ask people who they see out there, who do they observe outside of their own business, where they Hmm. say, you know, that person is doing something very cool. Absolutely. Well, besides you, Tom, with your podcast, what I really thought was cool over the last period was, it's actually a person I saw a couple of times at, at, at events, uh, a very inspiring guy, Bertrand Picard, uh, who flew these, you know, solar, um, did the solar challenge to fly the plane around, you know, 40,000 kilometers without a drop of fuel based on, you know, clean, clean energy. And um, the way that they, they've done that and the way that they've failed and you know stepped back up and 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 you know proven that things can can be done if if the if the willpower is good enough, but also the the humbleness with which they have talked about it, the way that they use modern technologies, social media. Um, you know, one thing I came across that we use for our book launch, you know, it's a very simple thing called thunderclap. Right when they landed in Abu Dhabi, you can join a thunderclap and. You know, the same message would go out if you support the message. So it's 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 uh, it's giving your social capital to 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 support a good cause, um, and it's something that um, you know I, I learn a lot by observing how others do things. Uh, Alex Osterwald has been a big inspiration with you know the work at the Business Model Canvas. Uh, he he was actually you know our book is probably a response to his call for toolsmiths at an event that he did that he was terrified of putting up because I had lunch with him eight weeks before his event and he had the deer in headlight looks and I said, we're not going to help you because we paid 2,000 euros to come to your events, right? But afterwards, we're happy to come and work with your team and test our model on you guys. So I think it's about the back and forth of knowledge, you know, the currency of money, uh, but mostly the currency of time um, that, 
that is fascinating. And it's, it's people that challenge the boundaries that I, that I admire for doing it and, you know, allow themselves to fail and dust themselves off and get back up and try again. <laughs> well, Rude, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. You've become a rock star in the meetings business and the things that you're doing and, and the stuff that you've done with Event Canvas and now with this new book. If somebody's listening to this and they think, I, I got to know who this, this, this Rude you know, Jensen guy is, how do they find you? Where, where was the best place to track you down? Okay, so very simple. Go to eventcanvas.org. Uh, that's where you'll find all the materials we were speaking about, the book, the free download of the first 100 pages. You'll find our social media profiles. Um, you will also be able to download the free Event Canvas under Creative Commons. If it's not in your language yet, um, feel free to translate it. We have opportunities for you to contribute to the community. So basically, um, you know, my name is, is very difficult. When I selected my Twitter handle, at Ruth W. Jansen, I had no clue how I was going to use it later. <laughs> you can tell. My parents didn't know that I was going to travel the planet at the time because they would have probably chosen a different first name. <laughs> uh, I would explain it by saying Rudolph without the Alf now, and I start off by drawing a big red nose on the flip chart, you know, because <laughs> my name is just misspelled, misused, and joked about across the planet. Yeah, because you're one of the nicest guys I've ever met, and <sighs> you're not rude at all, and yet you're rude. Yes. So sometimes the anti-problem is part of your problem. <laughs> but I wasn't going to change my name for the better. So, uh, well, once I again, like my name just the way it is. <laughs> well, once again, thank you so much for being a guest on the show, and thank you to everybody for tuning in. If you're somebody who is from the events business and you don't know who Rude Jensen is, I know that uh, we've done a done you a great service exposing you to him. If you're one of his friends all over the world, you already know how great he is and the stuff that he's contributing to our wonderful meetings industry. So thank. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you to everybody who listened. Please jump over to the Facebook page or check us out on Twitter at Cool Podcast. We're going to be back in a couple of days with an interview with somebody just as cool as Rude. But in the meantime, hey, you go out there and have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at, at @TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.